Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Asatoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityurma Amritam Gamaya Om Shanti 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 Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. After yesterday's retreat on non-duality, somebody asked me, what are you going to do tomorrow? That's today, Sunday. I said, I'll try to repair the damage. (laughs) All these good people, and you're spoiling them by talking about about non-duality and that you are God and things like that, you know. You're just ruining them. (laughs) Today we talk about the path of love, bhakti. Now, those who attended yesterday's retreat, it may seem confusing, but because it just looks like the polar opposite, just the opposite of what we did yesterday. This is because spiritual life, it can be understood in different ways. In Hinduism, you have a wide range of approaches to spiritual life, a whole spectrum. There is the path of knowledge, there's the path of love, there's the path of meditation, there's the path of service. And uh, you can combine any two of them or three of them or all of them, different practices, different approaches, different paradigms. In the path of knowledge, which we did yesterday, the problem is understood as one of ignorance. The divinity is our real self, our real nature. We just do not know it. And therefore, we have to know it. We think what we understand about ourselves is very wrong. We think we are this little body of flesh and blood, and that's who we are. We're born, and we suffer, and we die, and that's our life. Now, the path of knowledge comes from there and it says we have to undertake a process of philosophical analysis in Sanskrit, vichara. And this will reveal to us the truth. Hence, it's called the path of knowledge. When you inquire, when you philosophically analyze, look into the whole problem, the answer should become obvious. That's one way of looking at spiritual life. There's another way. In uh, the path of meditation, if you look at the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, The thrust is not on philosophical analysis. The thrust is on meditation. Why? Because the whole spiritual problem is understood as restlessness of the mind. In the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, it's because our mind is restless that we do not know the truth. If the mind could be calmed down, if the mind could be focused, if the mind could be concentrated, the truth would reveal itself. And if that is the problem, if restlessness of the mind is the problem, then the solution would be concentration of mind, focus of mind. And the method would obviously be meditation, different processes of meditation. That would be the method. That's one way of looking at spiritual life. There's a third way, which we shall take up today. That is the way of love, of faith, of surrender, of adoration. Here, the spiritual problem is looked at not as a question of ignorance and knowledge, not as a question of restlessness and concentration of mind. No. The spiritual problem is because we have no faith in God, because we do not surrender to God, that we do not love God. All our love is scattered in the world. That's why we suffer. So this is the path of love. 
bhakti. It's just different ways of looking at it. But bhakti has some special advantages. And today we shall talk about bhakti. All of spiritual life in Vedanta or in Hinduism in general, all of spiritual life comes from this source that we are in this world and we suffer and hence we need, uh, need to get out of this world of suffering. Buddha, for example, in Buddhism, the first noble truth is that there is suffering in the world. And therefore, is there a way out of suffering? And the Buddha says, yes, there is. It's something called uh, nirvana. And is there a way to attain nirvana? He says, yes, there is. There's the eightfold path. So just like that, in bhakti also, why should we love God? Why should we have faith in God or surrender to God? The answer is the same. Because you have attained to this world of suffering. In the Gita it is said, Krishna says to Arjuna, Prapya imam asukham lokam bhajaswamam, which means having attained this world of suffering, now that thou art in this world of suffering, worship the Lord thy God. So, because it's a world of suffering. But that's a common, um, common problem for all the paths. But in bhakti, the speciality is this, that this is the path which God loves. Everybody loves to be loved and God loves to be loved. <laughs> God has a special place in his heart or her heart because in Hinduism you can have him or her or it. It can be male or female or beyond gender, with form or without form. God has been conceived of in many, many different ways in Hinduism. So love of God is something specially dear to God. One of the teachers of bhakti put it this way. Look, you who are on the path of meditation, you want to attain samadhi, the deepest absorption, meditative absorption, so that the truth is revealed that you are this immortal consciousness beyond body and mind. Is that right? I say yes. And then when you, re when you realize that, when you realize that you are this immortal consciousness beyond body and mind through meditation, after that meditation has no use because you've already realized it. So the goal in meditation is not to meditate, but using meditation as a means to attain liberation. So when you attain liberation, you let go of the means. When you cross the river, you let go of the boat. You don't carry it along with you. Right? And say, yeah, I guess so. And in the path of knowledge, there is some technicality here. In the path of knowledge, in Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta, they say that there comes a moment of intuition, a flash of enlightenment. In Sanskrit, it is called Brahmakara Vritti or Brahma Jnana. The flash of intuition which reveals to you that you are Brahman. That comes at a culmination of your philosophical inquiry into who am I. When that comes, you realize that you are Brahman. Now, there is a technical discussion there. Uh, basically, what it says is, once you have got that, you don't have to hold on to that knowledge. I am Brahman, I am Brahman, I am the absolute. No, because you realize you are beyond the mind. So the knowledge which is in the mind is of no more consequence to you. Sri Ramakrishna, it's a complicated thing, but Sri Ramakrishna put it very simply. He said, you know what knowledge of God is like? You have a thorn in your flesh and you take another thorn and pull out the first thorn. But you don't leave the second thorn in your flesh now. You throw both away. You have the thorn of ignorance, you take the thorn of knowledge, pull out the thorn of ignorance, and then you throw both away. So after the intuitive realization that you are Brahman, you don't need to hold on to the, the particular intuition which revealed to you that you are Brahman. Which means, to put it very simply, after knowledge is attained, that particular knowledge is of no use to you. You let go of it, you remain as the absolute. 
Is that true? And the one on the path of knowledge will say, yeah, that's what our teachers tell us. Ah, the teacher of bhakti says, but in the path of love, do you ever say that I love and adore the Lord and finally the Lord has revealed himself to me? Uh -huh. And so now that I have found the Lord, I can stop loving him. <laughs> no. In the path of bhakti, it, is, it begins with love, it proceeds with love. In the end, when you find the Lord, love increases all the more. All the time as you walk on the path of love, love increases. There's never a time when you say, okay, I've done what I wanted to do. I'm enlightened. Let go of the... <laughs> I can stop loving God and I've got other things to do in my list. <laughs> I actually found this uh, young man in, uh, in our uh, ashram in uh, the Himalayas in India, uh, who was from New York. And uh, he was on a vacation. He was reading this high text of non-duality, Ashtavakra, sitting under a tree and reading. And then he looked very impatient and he said to me, Swami, I'm very worried. I still haven't attained enlightenment. I've been trying for the last one month, nearly two months now. <laughs> I, I said to him that, um, well, it'll take a little more time than that. You should give it a little more time. You know, don't be impatient. And then he says, no, 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 you don't understand. I've got a break from my job for two months, so I have to attain enlightenment and get, go back. So I have to attain enlightenment and go back to my job in one Wall Street. That's not how it works. <laughs> All of that, in fact, the way spirituality is understood in Vedanta, it's not a part-time occupation. Spirituality is what all of life is about. Aurobindo, a great uh, philosopher, saint of India, he put it very beautifully. He said that all life is yoga. All life is yoga. Do it consciously, you're a spiritual seeker. If you're not doing it consciously, you're just living life. It's the same thing. Life is not, um, you know, the, the whole set out of which one element is spirituality. No, spirituality and life are one and the same thing. Do it consciously, you know that you're a spiritual seeker. Otherwise, it's just what, you, what people call life. You are here because you are spiritual seekers. All the hundreds of thousands of people out there on the freeways in Santa Barbara, they're just living life. They're not here because they do not consciously think of themselves as spiritual seekers. So, bhakti. The teacher of bhakti says, and they are trying to sell bhakti to us, that after enlightenment also bhakti does not cease. Love of God does not cease. It keeps on increasing. It's even more at that point because then God is really real for you after enlightenment. Bhakti has certain advantages. When you take up any text of Advaita, non-dual Vedanta, the path of knowledge, what happens is when you first open it, the very first thing that you find are the preliminary qualifications. That's enough to turn off anybody. <laughs> you are supposed to have clarity about the absolute. Brahman is the ultimate reality. The world is temporary, um, transient, impermanent. One. This is called Viveka. Second, you're supposed to have utter dispassion and disregard for the world and a one-pointed seeking of the absolute. This is Vairagya dispassion for the world. Remember, all of this is to begin with before you st actually start reading the book. You're supposed to have all of that before you <laughs> enter the book. And then you've got to have six disciplines. Calmness and control of the mind. Well, what does that mean? That I shall think only of my, my non-dual Vedanta, my inquiry into Brahman, and not anything else. I will not think about the world. That kind of calmness and control of the mind. 
control of the sense organs of all our, our, our body, our, our sense organs, the discipline there. Then you have to have fortitude. All the troubles that the world throws at you, it should not shake you from the path of knowledge. And then you can already see it's pretty difficult. And then you're supposed to withdraw from the world of enjoyment. That taking enjoyment and a half a dozen different things, no. You've got to turn off that, that internet and the phone and everything and concentrate and put your mind on, on the philosophical inquiry in the path of knowledge. And then a settledness, a settledness, um, instead of getting scattered back into the world, you settle down in your quest for realization. And a deep faith that though I do not get it yet, what the texts are telling me, they're true. I don't, I don't get it yet. I've got to get it ultimately. But right now, I have this faith that what the texts are saying is are true. And finally, an intense desire to be liberated. Intense desire to be liberated. Sri Ramakrishna says, if somebody catches hold of you and thrusts your head under water and holds you there, and you are struggling, breathless, you're struggling, breathless, trying to get out. Imagine your uh, intense desire to have one more gulp of air. In that way, one must yearn for liberation. And all of this before you start reading the book. Somebody compared knowledge, path of knowledge, jnana, to the king who comes to visit you. So when the king comes to visit you, you must arrange. It's after all the king who's coming. Clean up your room and have your best furniture and your best uh, crockery on display and you dress up nicely. Everything must be nice and ready because the king is going to come. And what does the king do when he comes? Well, he comes in a lordly way and sits down and does not do anything much. You have to take care of the king. So jnana, the path of knowledge, is compared to the king. You have to be ready with all of these qualities. You have to be practically a saint before you start the path of knowledge. On the other hand, in contrast to this, bhakti, the path of love, is described as a humble maidservant. If you let her into your house, you don't have to do anything. She comes and cleans up. You see, when a love of God comes into the heart, all the virtues, all the virtues of spiritual life, they follow in its train. When love of God comes, you don't have to individually cultivate honesty and discipline and so on. Love of God will bring all of that. Bhakti is compared to an humble maidservant who comes and cleans up your room and decorates it nicely. She does everything that has to be done. So, yes, we are selling bhakti today. <laughs> so how do we cultivate this love of God? Meditation is difficult. I mean, when you meditate, the two common complaints are, Swami, I fall asleep when I try to meditate. That's one complaint. The other complaint is, Swami, uh, my mind thinks of so many different things. It's usually when I do not meditate, my mind is calm. But the moment I start meditating, my mind goes just, just about every which way. That's because when we are not meditating, we are actually not aware of what's there in the mind. The moment we calm down and look into the mind, we become aware of what's there in the mind. That's why the mind seems to be disturbed. But it's difficult. Meditation is difficult. The path of knowledge is difficult. The path of bhakti. How do I get love for God? If you ask. The teachers of the masters of bhakti, they tell us, it's actually very easy. It's very easy. You know what you have to do? All the things that you consider to be your own in the world. Mine. When you, when you use the word mine. My house. Uh, my wife or husband, my father or mother, my children and my grandchildren, my car or whatever is mine, where you've got mine. 
just say to yourself, my God. Attach that, in Sanskrit it's a very precise term, mamata, which means a sense of ownership. It's mine. Attach that to God. Don't begin with, I'm trying to love God, I feel love of God in my heart. It's artificial. Just say, my God. Automatically love comes there. A sense of closeness of ownership comes. Say, my Lord, thou art mine. Just add it. You don't have to give up anything. The path of knowledge will say, cut out everything else. And then focus on this. Bhakti says nothing. You don't have to cut out anything. You have this whole list of mine. My car, my house, my dog. After that, you can add my God. (laughs) Really, you can actually do that also. Just say my God. And a closeness develops between us and the Lord. And there's a very nice description of how bhakti operates, love of God operates. Um, uh, it's in Sanskrit, it's called bhikshu pada prasarana nyaya. Literally translates into the analogy of the holy beggar stretching his legs. Now, whatever does that mean? It means in India, many of the beggars are actually, they are kind of, they are beggars, but they're also kind of sometimes uh, men of God. They roam around and they beg for food and many of them are spiritual seekers. So he's called a bhikshu. In fact, in Buddhism, the term bhikshu means a monk. So these bhikshus, it means both a beggar, the one who begs for food, and uh, also is a spiritual seeker. So this bhikshu, this holy beggar comes to your house and he says, I don't need anything. Just give me a spot and a corner, anything will do. And you say, all right, just stay there. And he stays there and then he says, just a little more room to stretch out my legs. You see, you have this in English. The story of, we have have read about it, the story of the camel and the Arab who pushed his, the camel who pushed his nose into the tent. And then little by little, finally the one who was staying in the tent was pushed out of the tent because the camel occupied the whole tent. But this is a similar thing, but in a good way, in a nice way. So the, the bhikshu says, let me stretch out my legs. So the idea is, The bhikshu wants to stretch out his legs and takes a little more room. The next thing the bhikshu says, well, I have the Lord here, my my Rama or my Krishna or Shiva. And I need a corner for the Lord. Because often these wandering uh, monks will carry a small image or also holy relic with them. So I need a corner for the Lord. So one more corner. And now, of course, the Lord has to be given offerings. So a part of your kitchen has to be given for... You can't just cook with, with everybody else. It has to be cooked specially for the Lord. So you need a part of your kitchen. And of course, the flowers in your garden have to be offered to the... <laughs> what, it, what happens is, slowly the Lord takes over your life. And it's a good thing. Bhakti has this way, love has this way of taking over your life. It's called Bhikshupada Prasarana Nyaya. Uh, the, the analogy of the holy beggar stretching out his legs. It's, it's a beautiful thing, actually, to, uh, to see how... God slowly spreads over all your life, all your actions, and takes it over. There are these traditions in India where each family had its deity. And the tradition was early in the morning, the Lord has to be awakened, and then food has to be cooked and offered to the Lord, and nobody gets to eat until the Lord has had his share, and things like that. Now, most people in India today do not understand the point of that. They still feel uneasy about not doing it, but they say that it restricts our freedom. We, we have to be at home. Somebody has to cook. Somebody has to do the worship. Somebody has to do this or that because the Lord is there in the home. They don't understand the psychology behind it. That was precisely the point. 
to divert you from worldly activities and tie you down in divine activities. That was the point. It's not the restriction of your freedom. Freedom to do what? To be worldly. To take the time and energy away and concentrate it on God. That was the point. Uh, it's not meant to be an encumbrance or some kind of a hardship. Love is also connected to action. I remember this monk in the Himalayas. He was a non-dualist, a, a path of knowledge. But uh, he told me when he was a young monk, a very interesting monk, he lived in a cave for most of his life. Now he has a little ashram. And he told me, I've, I've committed only one sin in my life, starting this ashram. I was much better, better off in the cave. <laughs> uh, we said, of course, um, why do you say that, Swami? So many people can come and meet you here because you have the, the hermitage, the ashram. But he said when he was young and he was with his guru in the Himalayas again, he was quite active in the sense that he would go around and look up the old monks who were there in their huts or caves and he would ask after them, do you need a, a, a blanket? Do you need some milk or do you need some service done? Things like that, you know, worship to, to, to serve them. And then his guru once scolded him, he said. He said, my guru once scolded me saying that, my dear boy, in Hindi, Kuch bhajan bhi kar liya kar. Do, do some spiritual practices also. Why are you just going around trying to help these people? Do some spiritual practices, which means prayer and meditation, things like that. And he said, I was depressed when I heard that. And then I looked it up in the Sanskrit dictionary. The Sanskrit word or Hindi word for spiritual practice is bhajan. It's called bhajan. Bhajan also means singing the praises of the Lord. He looked it up and he saw the root meaning. All the Sanskrit words have roots. So the roots have their meanings. The root meaning of the term bhajan, the root is bhaj, the uh, stem of the word. He said, I saw it means bhaj sevayam. The root meaning of the word bhaj, uh, of bhajan, is service. It's very interesting. It's service. It's the word itself stands for prayer and meditation and everything. But if you go to the grammatical root, it says seva, service. Love is connected with service. If somebody comes and says, I love humanity, sure. What are you doing about it? Oh, nothing. I just love humanity. <laughs> That's not very useful. Uh, <laughs> somebody said, uh, I do believe that, that women should have equal rights in, in the jobs, that they have equal pay, or something else he said, uh, that the Amazon rainforest should be protected. You have a lot of beliefs. What do you do about it? Nothing. I just have beliefs. I don't have to do anything about it. I just like believing these things. But love automatically translates into action. Whenever you love something, mother loves the children. It's always expressed in action. So love of God inevitably is expressed in action, in seva. I've seen this so many times, you know. Very senior monk in, in, in our monastery. It's not his duty, but... He gets up every day at 3.30 3 in the morning and goes out into the garden and he plucks flowers, the choicest pl flowers which he can, sometimes in the dark, sometimes when it's raining, and gets it, cleans it, brings it back, brings those flowers back to the shrine for the worship of the Lord. It's just an act of service. It's just an act of love, an expression of love. I've seen others, I mean, it's not their duty or they're not supposed to do it, I've seen them come to the shrine of the Lord. At the back of the shrine, they're making a garland for the Lord. It's an, it's an act of love. Love automatically translates into service, into seva. Not only that, 
all our actions there is a wider sense in which all our actions whatever you do in the in the world all of that can be connected back to the lord swami vivekananda said never approach anything except as god whatever you do in the world can be done as an offering to the lord you can eat to the lord you can even sleep to the lord whatever you eat you you imagine you are feeding the lord so when you sleep you imagine this i'm meditating on the lord that's a nice way of meditation <laughs> i am going from here to there somewhere but i imagine i'm going to the temple of the lord in in the mind create this atmosphere of divinity a presence of god a practicing the presence of the lord all the actions that we do in life whether it's cooking whether it's driving or whether it's uh, working in the office or the school everything every place becomes a fit place for the meeting of man and god this is i'm quoting nivedita in her introduction to the complete works of vivekananda she says henceforth no division between the sacred and the secular to labor is to pray to have and hold is as stern a trust as to renounce and quit the shop floor the school room the factory whatever they are all as fit a meeting place between man and god as the cell of a monk so converting our day to day activities into acts of love bhakti has powerful results love of god has powerful and direct results there is a sutra in the narada bhakti sutras which says siddho bhavati amrito bhavati tripto bhavati what does it mean by love of god the spiritual seeker becomes perfect attains immortality and attains complete satisfaction what does that mean perfection in spiritual life usually comes through practice so meditation and prayer many years of dedicated practice in the yoga sutras in the path of meditation you find those who practice intensively and for a long time their meditation becomes perfect and here is bhakti love of god saying that without that practice just by love of god you become perfect without that practice love is not a practice if you see a mother you know taking care of her children will she say oh i'm practicing love no it's natural she doesn't think i have to practice anything it's natural it comes from that immortality becomes immortal now in the path of knowledge it is said by knowledge by realizing that you are brahman you one becomes immortal tameva viditva ati mrityumeti in sanskrit it is said by realizing that the absolute one transcends death and here in bhakti it is said just by love one becomes immortal how does that work you see there are two ways to get this non dual knowledge one is what we did yesterday study the vedanta reflect upon it meditate upon it get that intuitive knowledge i am brahman i am not the body and mind and you are free not easy the other way and it really works is if you ask the lord for it in the gita it's said again and again the lord says be devoted unto me surrender unto me i shall add unto you what you require sri ramakrishna used to say the mother has shown me what is there in vedanta she's shown it to me when his vedanta teacher came the wandering monk totapuri he came and he said do you want to learn non dual vedanta and he said let me ask my mother at first he thought he had gone to ask his own mother you know he uh, thought he just wanted permission from his mother he went to the kali temple and asked permission from kali and and uh, and divine mother said yes i have brought him here to teach you it's because of my will but he would say that 
Divine Mother has shown me what's there in Vedanta. The Lord reveals. I know of cases where the mantra, the guru gives the mantra to the disciple and the disciple repeats the mantra, the name of the Lord. And by that, in a completely dualistic practice, this is God, I'm meditating on God and repeating the name of God. Yet the result is, the, the result is non-dual realization. Uh, it's, it's interesting. If you see the, on paper, what it is supposed to give is, you meditate on God and you have a vision of God in whatever form, Krishna, Christ, whatever you're meditating on. That's supposed to be the goal. But I know of cases where people did that, practiced it, but what they got was non-dual realization. I am Brahman. So, the ultimate realization that you are Brahman, that also comes from love of God. And the third one, tripto bhavati, attains complete satisfaction. Usually, all our pursuits in the world, what we eat and drink and our relationships and our jobs, our creative pursuits, everything that we do in the world is in pursuit of satisfaction. We want some happiness. Some, the Sanskrit word is very nice, tripti, which means sort of fullness of the heart. I want that. And yet, the world is a desert. We remain as thirsty as ever. You know, it doesn't fulfill our heart. I often say, all of us, we have been trying from our childhood till today, for the last 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And who can say that my heart is full, I am calm and full of bliss forever? We cannot say, the world cannot satisfy that, cannot give us that satisfaction. But love of God can. In fact, any love can, but especially love of God can. It gives us complete satisfaction forever. So love by itself gives perfection without the practice. Though you will do practice, but it doesn't seem like practice to you. Without the pursuit of the path of knowledge, by the grace of the Lord, you get that realization. And without trying to beg for satisfaction from worldly pursuits, you get complete satisfaction in the Lord. Now, in the time remaining to me, let's talk about the higher practices of love, the, the higher sadhana of love. What I mean by higher, you see, religion is of two kinds. Especially bhakti, the path of love and devotion to God, is clearly of two kinds. Most of mass religion in the world, whether it's Christianity or Hinduism or any kind of religion, is mostly a dualistic approach where you believe in God and pray to God for, the, for what you want. And most of it is of the lower kind of bhakti, where I want to make this distinction. What is the lower kind of bhakti and a higher kind of bhakti? One is, I believe in God, I really do, and I pray to the Lord for what I want. If I want a job, I, I, I pray to God to give me the right job. If I've got a job, I pray to God not to be laid off. I, I pray to God to settle my mortgages. I pray to God for the welfare of the stock market so that my stocks do well. I have suffering. I have pains and aches and diseases in my body. I pray to the Lord to, to take care of that. Or, or my beloved, somebody close to me is suffering. I pray to the Lord for that. All of them worthy. There's nothing really wrong in that. And now what happens is, here I'm using God to serve my purposes, to enhance my life. And there is a convenience, you know, like a, a washing machine is a convenience. A car is a convenience. And God is a convenience. So God makes my life better. God makes my life better. So I pray to God, give me these things. Make my life this way. The problem with that is, 
We often find this. That I prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing happened, so I don't believe in God anymore. It can happen. And it has happened to people. You know what's happening there, the psychology behind it. I prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing happened and I have lost faith in God. I don't believe in all that anymore. You're basically saying, I hired God for this job. He didn't do his job, so I fired him. God is fired. He's laid off. I don't want him around anymore. Why does that happen? It's because we used God to enhance our life. God for our life. The higher bhakti is my life for God. What is central? I want a nice life. God will help me to have it. That's one kind of bhakti. And that's, that's the mass religion. You find it all the time. Krishna says there is nothing wrong in this. He says four kinds of people believe in God, worship God. In the Gita he says, Arto, Artharti, Jigyasu, Gyanicha. The one who is in distress. One. The one who is in distress, in trouble, suffering. Some kind of problem in life. And I pray to the Lord to help me in my suffering. That's one kind of devotee. And he says that's perfectly fine. And the second kind is not in trouble, but want something more. You know, money or some kind of um, relationship or some kind of success in life. Things are okay, but I want something more. So that's another kind of devotee. Again, perfectly all right. The third kind is the inquirer. Is not in trouble not suffering, does not want anything specifically, but is inquiring, a spiritual seeker, does God exist? Can I find God? Is it true what all these scriptures of the world say that the Lord actually exists and I can see the Lord? And So a spiritual seeker, that kind of person also loves God and has faith in God. Better. And then last, Krishna says, Gyani, the one who is enlightened. The one who is enlightened also loves God. And Krishna actually says, he clearly declares for the last one. He says, it's the enlightened one who is truly in me and I am in him. Because for that person, I am real. The others are all proceeding on faith. So, worshipping God for making my life better, there's nothing wrong in that. But that should not be the primary purpose of worship. The higher bhakti is where my life is for God. God is not for my life. Whatever happens in my life, I'm ready to take it. But I love and adore God. That's my locus standi. There is this um, monk who told me something very nice. He said, each of us has three rivers flowing through us. In each human being, there are three rivers which flow through us. What are they? I'll tell you in Sanskrit first and then in uh, English. Karma, jnana, bhava. Karma, easily translated, the river of action, which means what you do, what you do in life, your profession and what you do in, at home and all of that, all the action that you perform, that's one river in your life. Jnana, what you know, what you have understood, what you have, your wisdom, your learning, your development, that the, the river of knowledge which flows through us. And the third one is difficult to translate, bhava. It could roughly be translated as heart. Where your heart is, what do you deeply want in life, really? And that monk said, I am not interested. He was telling us, I am not interested in what you do. Whether you're a householder or a monk or you're an executive or whatever. No, I'm not interested. I'm not even interested in your spiritual practices. Whether you meditate or whatever, no. I'm not interested in what you know. Whether you have read the Upanishads and all of that, no, I'm not interested. But I am interested in your bhava. Tell me where your heart is. Because that's what you will attain in life. 
and he told me this beautiful story. He said, um, there might be a priest in a temple. All the actions of the priest are holy because the priest is performing worship, opens the temple, decorates the Lord, performs the worship, chants the mantras. So all the actions are religious. And the knowledge of the priest may have memorized a lot of Sanskrit verses, may have read all the scriptures. So the knowledge, the river of knowledge is also spiritual. But if the heart is, how many devotees have come today? How much did they give in offerings? I can use that to put a new roof on my house. And I can send my son to the best school. If that's what he's thinking, then the monk told me, then his heart, his bhava, his heart is in the world. It's not in God. And what will he get in this life? He'll get the world. He'll get the word. When he prays to the Lord, what does he ask for? I have de- Just imagine the irony of it. I have devotion to God. I love God. And I pray to the Lord. And what do I pray for? I pray for the world. I want the world. I want samsara. The great tragedy of it, approaching the Lord and praying for samsara. You'll get samsara. You're asking for trouble, literally asking for trouble. <laughs> In contrast to this, there's this beautiful story I heard from another monk, in contrast, where is a person who may not know much, may not have read many spiritual books or nothing at all, may be doing the most humble of tasks, most ordinary of tasks, but really loves and wants God. So this story is of the sweeper who is to come to the Jairambati Ashram in the place where Ma Sharada, Holy Mother, was born in Bengal, this little village. It's not so little anymore, but there is an ashram there, a big ashram. And the monk told me, the, who told me the story, that, that we have seen this person, old person who is to come and sweep the grounds, clean the grounds. And when he was very old and unable to work too well, the Swami in charge of the ashram told him, sir, you need not come. You just stay at home and relax. We'll send you your, your money, your pension, whatever. And then the old man said, I don't do it for money, Swami. When I was a little boy, I used to come here. And then Ma Sharada, the Holy Mother, was here. I saw her. And I used to see all these people coming from Calcutta, the big city. And all these Swamis coming. And they had ecstasies. They had deep spiritual experiences. She gave them initiation, mantra. And I always felt, will I not get anything? So one day I went to the mother and asked her, Mother, won't I get anything? And she said, of course you will, my child. You'll get everything. Keep on doing what you are doing. That's all she said. He used to come with his father to, to, and he would clean the ashram also with his father. So he says all his life he kept on cleaning the ashram. And he told the Swami, I don't do it for money. I, I do it because the mother told me to. And one day he could not come anymore. His daughter came. And then the Swamis asked, what about your father? Oh, he cannot get out of bed. He is very ill. So the Swamis went to see him. And the story is so inspiring. When he passed away, finally, this old man, he had a vision of the Holy Mother. He said, Mother, you have not forgotten me. You have come. Nobody else could see it, of course, but he actually had a vision. Here is this person who had never read any Vedanta in his life. Here is this person. All he did was sweep the temple grounds. That's all he knew. And he attained the highest. So these three rivers which flow through us, I'm reminded of that beautiful story, a French story, uh, where there's this juggler who used to come into the 
church at night. You know, he was, he was doing this uh, juggling because um, the father thought that somebody is breaking into the church at night. So he waited, he lay in wait at night and he saw this juggler, a beggar actually, come into the church at night and then he was juggling. The father caught him, what are you doing? And the poor juggler said, it's our mother, Mother Mary. I'm showing her my, my juggling and she comes and listens to me and sees me and she praises my juggling. You see, where the heart is, and I'm sure he never studied the Bible. He never uh, did any spiritual practices. What he's doing is juggling. His knowledge, the river of knowledge is where it must be. Nothing. He doesn't know anything. But the heart is with God. The higher practice of bhakti. Now, how do I go into that higher practice of bhakti? Here is a powerful practice given to us by the masters of bhakti. Do this. The next time you go into the temple or the church, when you approach the Lord, Approach it in this way. I come, my Lord, because I love you. I, I come as a bhakta, as a lover of God. I do not come as a father or mother to pray for, for my children. I do not come as a person in financial difficulties to pray for my uh, alleviating my mortgage. I do not come here as a person who is in pain or sickness so that you can help me to alleviate my pain. No, I leave all those roles outside the door. When I enter here in front of the Lord, I'm just a lover of God. I come because I love thee. You do that and you see the power it has. It just transforms your entire view of God and yourself. All those other things become less important. They sort of become diminutive. They disappear from view. I come to the Lord because I love God. When Vivekananda, Narendranath, at that time a young boy, used to come to Ramakrishna. And Ramakrishna gave him so much importance. Whenever Narendranath came and he, all his attention would be on Narendranath and all the other people, and they would sometimes feel jealous. That, aren't we anybody? Why, is, why are you only focusing on that boy? And he was just a college kid. And so it went on like that. Until one day, Narendranath came and Ramakrishna did not speak to him. Did not look at him. And the next day it was the same thing. And the third day it was the same thing. And it went on for days and days and days when Ramakrishna did not even look at him. Did not even speak at him. It made other people uncomfortable and feel bad for Narain. But Narain would come and sit quietly and then leave after the discussion was over. One day Ramakrishna turned to him and said sharply, I don't even look at you. I don't even speak to you. Why do you come? And Narain said, Oh, I don't come because you pay attention to me. I come because I love you. <laughs> you see? So this, this is the higher bhakti, that I love God, that's why I'm here. No other reason. I don't, want any, I don't even want anything from God. Now, there are some, so this is the, how you enter into higher bhakti. And there are these practices. I'll just share five with you. We have got just time. I think I took more time than I intended to. But I'll share five practices with you. One is the practice of the name, Nama. A great power which the Lord has given us is the name of God. There's a cute little story that in the, when the universe was created, God made a division of his property between God and man. God said to man, from now on, I have got two things, you know, my form. In, in Hinduism, God has form, Shiva and Vishnu and Kali and whatnot. So my form will be hidden. You won't be able to see me from now on, when the universe is created. But I shall leave, leave with you my name. 
the name of Shiva or Krishna or Kali or whatever. The name of God is with you. The form I, I withhold. So you will not be able to see me, but you have the name of God with you. Those who are initiated into a mantra know that you have a very powerful practice. Swami Tapasyanji used to say, when you have got the mantra from your guru, know that you have got God in a seed form. You don't know it yet. It's there. I remember sitting in the monk's quarters in Belurmat and this old Swami, long passed away, he is a disciple of Vigyananandaji. He was sitting there and one day, I can never forget this, he was sitting there and, and, and chuckling. He was chuckling. that when I got the mantra, I thought, such a small thing. What's so great about it? And he says, and he's chuckling to himself and speaking to himself. He says, now I know, now I know, now I know. He's saying that. So power of, of the divine name. There's this story about, uh, old story in, uh, in India about the man who had to, to cross a river for some reason. He didn't have a boat or something. And his guru said, tie this. I'm going to write something and tie it to the hem of your cloth and just walk across the river. And so he tied it to the hem of his cloth and he actually tentatively stepped into the river. He was walking across the water, on the water. And as he was walking across the water, he's thinking, what a miracle, how powerful my guru is. But I wonder what he gave me. Let me take a look. In the middle of the river, he opened the cloth and he took out the piece of paper and it just said, Ram, the name of God. And he said, that's it? And immediately he sank into the water. <laughs> he got really wet. <laughs> it's simple, the name of God, but it's really, really powerful. I've seen many monks very senior, advanced spiritual practitioners who say that the greatest thing that ever happened to them in their lives was when they received the mantra from their guru. That's it. All the realizations they have had, all the practices they have done afterwards, they say it all flows from that mantra. I was reading, I'm in the Vedanta Society of New York now. Swami Bodhananda was there. He was a disciple of Swami Vivekananda. He was there from the uh, 20s to 1951. He passed away there in New York. Towards the end of his life, just before he passed away, he said, somebody asked him about his life. He said, I had, there are only three principal events in my life. One, when Swami Vivekananda initiated me. Second, when I found a place in the royal court of Ramakrishna, in becoming a monk of the Ramakrishna order. Second, that was the second big thing that happened to me. And third is now when I, when I attain ultimate release from this world. These, these three are the three. That's my life. <laughs> Nama, the power of name. Then the second practice is the form. In Hinduism, God is conceived to have different forms, both male and female in different forms. A, a variety of divine forms are um, conceived of. And so it's a powerful technology. It focuses your mind on a particular form. I'll just tell you a story about the power of form. Um, it's from Ramanuja, the great um, qualified monist who lived about a thousand years ago in the south of India. He lived a long time. He passed away when he was 120 years old. So when the story happens, he was already quite old and very respected as a saint. He had many disciples. Now, this temple is a temple of Vishnu, where he stayed, Sri Rangam. And in South India, the big temples have huge festivals. And during the festivals, there is this uh, divine procession where there are special images, not the main image which is permanently installed in the temple, but there are small images which are called Utsava Murti, which are taken out in procession, sometimes around the temple, or if it's a village, sometimes around the village, with music and chanting of mantras and the priests and the devotees. 
So the description is of a huge festival where the images are being taken around and these mantras are being chanted and thousands of people are there. And uh, Ramanuja with his disciples is passing through and they notice this young man in a big crowd, all of them are standing and you know, praying to the Lord and everything. This young man standing holding an umbrella. So they had umbrellas a thousand years ago. <laughs> holding an umbrella over the head of a young girl and staring at the girl. Now the people around, they looked annoyed. What kind of behavior is this in a holy place? Ramanuja noticed it and he sent one of his disciples, call that boy. And the devotees were taken aback. Who is this guy? Anyway, so they went and said to him, what's your name? Dhanur Dasa. The great saint Ramanuja, our master is there. He wants to speak with you. I don't know why, but so come, come with me. And the young man immediately said, all right. He put the umbrella down and he walked over and he saluted Ramanuja. And Ramanuja said, my boy, why are you staring at that girl when everybody's looking at the Lord? And the boy said, oh, she has the most beautiful pair of eyes in the world. That's why I'm looking at it. And the others were so scandalized. How dare you say such things in front of the great sage Ramanuja? But Ramanuja was not at all perturbed. He said to this boy, Dhanurdasa, he said, if I show you an even more beautiful pair of eyes, would you like to see that? He said, yeah, sure. All right, come today in the evening inside the temple, in the sanctum sanctorum, in the, in the, uh, the deepest part of the temple, where the image of Vishnu is there. When the evening service is performed, come then. Will they let me in? Just tell them, Ramanuja, I called you. They'll let you in. So in the evening, this man, he came, this young man, and they let him in. And Ramanuja was standing there. It's a reclining image of Vishnu. It's a very big image of Vishnu. And how the um, evening vespers are performed is the priest waves this lamp, lighted lamp, first at the feet of the image, then at the chest of the image and the face of the image. When the flames of the lamp lit up the face of Vishnu, Ramanuja catches hold of this young man and says to him, look, the most beautiful pair of eyes in the universe. And this young man, he looks and the image comes alive for him. He looks into the face of God and he goes into Samadhi and Ramanuja goes into Samadhi and people are astonished all around. This young man, Dhanurdasa became actually one of Ramanuja's greatest disciples. He married that girl, Hemamba, and both of them were among the greatest, yeah, they were among the greatest disciples. And there are wonderful stories about them, you know, and there's no time, but like, uh, anyway, so there's so many beautiful stories about how he used them to teach devotion to the monks who, who followed him, you know, who thought that they were higher than everybody else. And uh, he used them. So the form of God is so intensely attractive that it takes your mind away from the world. You see, one problem with the path of jnana, if I do not have the preliminary qualifications, then what happens is, people will say, I understand what you said yesterday, Swami, the isness of every, everywhere or the pure consciousness within, but it doesn't seem to be helping me. My suffering does not diminish. What happens is, jnana, the path of knowledge, works at the level of the intellect. But our real problems are not intellectual. Our real problems are at the level of the heart. The world, we want the world. Desire which goes out into the world, wanting, grasping, desiring. That's the real problem which ties us to samsara, not philosophy. So if you learn Vedanta, you get a feeling, I learned a particularly clever philosophy. But how does it really help me in life? Whereas bhakti, 
love of God, it works at the level of the heart. What it does is exactly, you know, love of the world is I want the world. And bhakti simply replaces the world with God. The same I want, God. The moment that comes in, everything else becomes effective. It's much easier to meditate. The path of knowledge also becomes effective. In fact, everything becomes effective if love of God fills the heart. Here is something that I don't know how valid it is. I can share with you. We were told this by some of the non-dualist monks in the Himalayas. They told us to, uh, that those who are on the path of knowledge can always benefit from the path of love. If you're on the path of knowledge, cultivate love of God, you will be benefited. It will help you. But, and I, this, this is the part I'm not sure of, but they told me, but those who are on the path of love, of bhakti, um, better not dabble in the path of knowledge because it may disturb your faith or it may disturb your, you know, the love that you have got for God. It, it may bring in a dose of, uh, atheism is a strong word, but um, non-belief maybe. So again, I'm a little doubtful about the whole thing, but definitely uh, I think both are wonderful and both help each other. So I don't think it's dangerous for persons on the path of love to cultivate the path of knowledge. Swami Vivekananda, on the other hand, strongly recommended cultivating all four, the path of love, the path of knowledge, and the path of service, and the path of meditation, all four of them. So the form of God is a second great practice which we have. The third practice is what is called in the Gita, Vibhuti, the glories of God. So when you look around and find beauty in the world, grandeur in the world, immediately associated with God, this is the glory of God. It reminds you of God. In the 10th chapter of the Gita, Krishna says, I am the sun among the, the luminaries in the sky, I am the Mount Meru among the mountains, I am the ocean among bodies of water. What it basically means is, after all, Brahman is everything, so why only particularly one thing? Where you find glory, where we find uh, magnificence, associate that with God. It reminds you of God. There are tracts in, in the Vedas which say, the sun and the moon are thy eyes, the sky is thy chest, the earth is thy waist, and so on. And so it's basically looking at the universe, not in a scientific worldview. If you say, no, 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 the sun is not the eye of God, it's just a ball of a hydrogen, it's the fusion reaction is going on, it's giving heat and light. True, that's one way of looking at it. That, that's the scientific way. But here you're cultivating a love of God, a reverence from God. So vibhuti, vibhuti means the glory of God. Wherever one sees in nature something magnificent and powerful and great associated with God. The fourth practice is very Vedantic. Brahman is existence, consciousness, bliss. Now in bhakti, what you do is, the existence of things, where you see the being of things, instead of trying to say, I am that being, that's the path of knowledge. There you say the Lord is present here as the isness of this temple, as the isness of this mountain, as the isness of this ocean and the sky. I bow down to the isness in all these forms. Consciousness, when you think, when you love, when you smile, all these conscious experiences, the light shining through all of them, the consciousness, you bow down to the Lord in the form of chit, consciousness, in all conscious experiences. When you see something, when you smile, when you feel love, when you think and understand something, when you remember something, all these are conscious experiences. Forget the particular experience, look at the consciousness behind it. Brahman is Sat, 
chit ananda, bow down to the consciousness there. The third practice is even more delightful. It is ananda. All happiness and joy is a manifestation of the ocean of bliss that is Brahman. The ocean of bliss is within us. And the spray from this ocean is what we call the joy of the world. Whenever you find happiness and bliss and, and fun in the world, say that it is a, a little bit, a, a, a spray from the ocean of bliss that is Brahman and bow down to that happiness there. Sat Chit Ananda. Instead of saying, I am Sat Chit Ananda, recognize existence, consciousness, bliss everywhere and bow down there. The final practice, I'll just mention it. It's also from the Gita. It requires some intuition of the oneness of all existence. At one time, we get an intuition that though it all seems different, at its heart, all of existence is one reality. Once one gets that intuition, one can feel it all the time. Instead of saying, I am that oneness of the universe, it may be difficult. Just say, God is that oneness of that universe. I bow down to the Lord in the form of oneness behind this diversity. So these are some higher practices of bhakti. I bow down to the Lord, to Bhagavan present here. May the Lord bless us with love and faith and surrender and fill our days with, with joy and peace. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ramakrishna Rupanamastu You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.